One thing I love about worship together in the body of Christ is that whether we sign up or not, we're a part of the choir. <laughs> and that uh, biblical worship is that all of us are singing not just to God, but also singing uh, to one another in encouragement. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, and while you find it, I'd love to encourage you to look around, and if you don't see a face you often see and you happen to have their number, I'd encourage you to write on your notes to make sure to follow up, shoot them a text, whatever uh, you need to do. And also, if you are new with us attending here or you're watching online with us because of everything going on with COVID, we're so glad you're here. My name's Matt, and I'd love, I'll be down front after the service and around and would love to meet you and greet you and just get to know you uh, and your family in these days. Genesis chapter 15, we've been walking through sort of the life of Abraham in part two here of the book of Genesis, and we're, and we're going to look at all of chapter 15 together. Genesis chapter 15, the word of God says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a, sm a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, 
the Ketamanites, the, Hitt the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, the Raphim, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Jerusites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of God for the people of God. Why do we call it the Old Testament? Has anybody ever put much thought into what exactly is a testament? Well, the word testament comes from the Greek and Hebrew words for covenant. And in fact, that's what we're going to look at predominantly this morning is that God made a covenant with Abraham. And the question comes then, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? And a covenant is at its core, an agreement between two parties. It is an agreement between two parties. And in fact, in the Bible, there are all sorts of different kinds of covenants. There can be national covenants, like how a king might relate to their subjects. This is actually what the book of Deuteronomy is, is a national covenant. There's definitely personal covenants between uh, individuals, but regardless, a covenant implies a committed relationship between two people built on love and promises, and a commitment that often requires a form of sacrifice or suffering on behalf of one of the parties. Probably for us in the 21st century, the closest thing to a covenant that many of us could think of is marriage. And now, no matter how unpopular or countercultural this may be, marriage was created by God to be a covenant between a man and a woman that points toward the covenant that God has made with his people through Jesus Christ. And marriage, despite what our culture may say, isn't, isn't simply a feeling. You can't feel married. You can't feel in covenant together, neither is marriage simply a piece of paper? I often hear people say that, though, let me tell you, the piece of paper represents the covenant and the vows made to one another. And in our passage this morning, we encountered the first use of the word covenant in Abram's life. And now, it certainly isn't the first use of covenant or the first covenant in the Bible, because as we'll see as you go through the Bible, covenant really is the backbone of the Bible. It really begins to form as you work through it. Covenants are everywhere. And while the Bible is broken up into Old Testament or Old Covenant and New Testament, New Covenant, there are actually a number of covenants in the Bible. In fact, there are two other covenants just in the book of Genesis. What are those other two covenants in the book of Genesis? Well, while the word covenant isn't there, all the parts of a covenant relationship are there in the garden with Adam and Eve. In other words, there was a conditional covenant in the garden. There was a conditional covenant in the garden. Think about it. God was in relationship with Adam and Eve. He gave them a covenant vow and he gave them rules and, he prom and, and, he, and the promise of keeping the covenant. He said, he said Adam, enjoy your wife. Enjoy the garden, everything except that one tree. And of course, Adam could have everything in the world and yet still want something else. Isn't that so much like how we tend to be? And if you don't enjoy that one tree, Adam, and you enjoy your wife and the garden and you work and you keep, life will be yours. 
and yet he broke the covenant. In fact, Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 says this about the future nation of Israel, but he compares them and he says, but like Adam, they, being Israel, transgressed the covenant there. They dealt faithlessly with me. There was a conditional covenant in the garden. But we also see second that there was an unconditional covenant with Noah. That there was an unconditional covenant with Noah. And in fact, the word covenant appears multiple times throughout the flood account. Consider just one, Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. And here the Lord says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. And we see in Genesis 8 to 9 that part of the covenant that God made with Noah is that God would save them through the flood, but also that he wouldn't flood the earth again. And that the sign of that covenant, much like a wedding ring is the sign of your covenant to your spouse, the sign of this covenant would be a rainbow in the, in the sky. Friends, no matter how bad and flooded my yard may be from the rains of this past week, and how muddy my animals are coming in from outside every day, I am reminded that God is never going to flood the earth again. He may flood my yard, but he will never flood the whole of creation again. And in both of these, you probably notice that there are two different types of covenants on display here. Notice I said that the garden covenant was a conditional covenant covenant. In other words, God said, do this and don't do this and you will live. There's conditions to this covenant. Do this and you'll get this. Whereas the covenant with Noah was unconditional and friends, God keeps that end of that covenant regardless of our actions. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about how God isn't going to flood the earth again, but that doesn't mean he won't come to judge the earth again in fire, that God will keep his end of the covenant. And now we come to a covenant with Abram. And particularly, we come to the covenant ceremony. God had already made promises to Abram back in Genesis 12, didn't he? Where he said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. But now we come to sort of the ceremony, the marriage ceremony, so to speak, and Abram has just returned from rescuing Lot, and he's defeated all of these kings in battle, and then the Lord shows up. And so many of us, because of, I think, well-meaning Sunday school literature and children's books, sometimes paint the Lord showing up as some gray-headed old man appearing to him. And yet, we need to see what happens here, that through covenant, God secures his promise, or his presence, sorry, through covenant, God secures his presence. Look what happens in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Notice how God begins, fear not. Upon encountering God, Abram needed assurance not to be afraid. Friends, God is scary. Upon encountering him as, as, as his creatures, particularly his creatures that have sinned against him, 
there is much to be afraid. Consider this scene that Isaiah sees. Isaiah gets taken right into the throne room of God. And here's what Isaiah saw in a vision. He, sa- he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, two covered their face. Two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. You see, finite creatures, even inanimate objects, begin to shake at the infinite God of the universe. Friends, when stuff that isn't alive starts shaking, you need to start shaking, right? And yet, God comes to him and says, fear not. I will be your shield and your reward shall be very great. God will be his shield. Didn't God display that just a chapter before when when Abram had entered into combat with the global powers of the day and he came out unscathed? Wasn't God his shield when he went into Egypt right into the throne room of Pharaoh and God spared him and brought him out? But God promises his presence not simply in danger, but he also promises his presence as the reward for Abram. He says, your reward shall be very great. And while I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, I think the NIV actually gets closer to what's being translated when the NIV says, your, uh, I, uh, that I will be your shield, I will be your very great reward. Through covenant, God secures his presence, both his presence in our times of trouble and his presence for all eternity. Though before God, we have something to fear in our sin, but through covenant, God can say to us, fear not. Through covenant, his people can have nothing to fear before him. Abraham is told, don't fear because I am in relationship with you. Have we ever given much thought to the fact that with all of the goodness that eternity is going to bring, that the truest sweetness is that God will be there? Notice that what he promises to him, he says, Abram, I'm not going to give you a sports car. I'm not going to give you a big house. I'm not going to give you a different family. I'm not going to give you all the cool things you might like. He says, I'm going to give you me. Have we ever asked ourselves why we long to go to heaven? Sometimes I hear people talk about it, and I hear songs, and I think they're often well-meaning, but they talk about having peace, joy, security, health forever. And friends, would we be happy if we had all of that, but God wasn't there? It's something to consider. Are we lovers of God's gifts more than lovers of God? Consider that if, you're, if maybe you're in a relationship with somebody or you're married or, or, or think about you and your parents and you give a gift and they're so excited about the gift that they forget to even thank you. 
or to do anything. And God would say and would call us through Genesis 15 to consider that God, through covenant, initiates the greatest gift we could ever ask for, his presence. That we can stand before him and hear, fear not, through covenant, God secures his presence. But second, through covenant, God secures his promises. God secures his promises. Notice, after this word about his presence, Abram goes to God with questions. And look what Abram said. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. Notice that Abram takes the big question to God. I mean, God has promised him offspring, and yet it looks as if his only heir won't be a son, but a distant relative. And notice God speaks to him and reminds him of the promises that we've seen throughout the last several chapters. And here's what he says, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him out and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. And if you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God reiterates the promise. He says, go outside. Do you see those stars? This is how great and vast your offspring will be. And in verse 4, we see for the first time, this offspring is going to be a son. And then we see that Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This verse becomes central to the Apostle Paul to show us that what unites you to Jesus, what is the means by which we're declared righteous before God, what sets us right with him, what causes our sin to be forgiven and our right standing with God to be restored is faith in God's word of promise. On Wednesdays, our our men's group is actually looking at at Romans chapter 4. And what we've been seeing there and what we saw two weeks ago when we were together is that ever since the beginning, any relationship with God has always been founded upon faith trust upon receiving God's good news. Here's what Romans 4 says. Here's how Paul puts it. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's Genesis 15, right? We just saw it. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Look what he says. It is by faith alone, not works, that we are counted righteous. That our salvation before God isn't like your paycheck. It isn't come in, do all the work, and get your ticket at the end. It isn't, hey, come to church enough, give enough, be good enough, read your Bible enough, pray enough, do all these things enough to get your check at the end of the day. No, The Christian message is that God justifies the ungodly. The Christian message isn't to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps or even to try to clean yourself up because, hear me, you can't do it. 
the scandalous news, this is absolutely scandalous, is that God justifies ungodly people. Do you see that there in Romans 4? That we must believe in him who justifies the ungodly. And that he does it. Notice, they're still ungodly when he does it. He doesn't say he, he justifies the formerly ungodly who went and cleaned up their whole life. And now he justifies them. No, he actually justifies ungodly people. That unrighteous and sinful people can be declared righteous and clean before God. What an incredible promise found in this covenant. And Abram, even in his faith, still has questions. Notice verse 7 of Genesis 15. And he said to him, so God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said back, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, this is what God now says back to Abram, how how are you going to know, Abram? Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brings all of these things, doesn't he? He cuts them in half, and he lays each half over against the other. And he did not cut the birds in half. But when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Notice first, this is a bizarre scene, but there's something incredible that we're going to see happening here. And this took Abram some time. There were birds coming down to try to get at these, these carcasses, and he had to shoo them away. And we also need to notice that faith was never the absence of questions. Abraham, we're told, believed God, but he still had some questions about how this was all going to work. And, and God's answer really doesn't answer the question, does he? He says, God, how am I going to know that I possess it? And he says, go get a bunch of barn animals. That, that doesn't answer Abram's question at all, at least on the surface. And I want us to know that this church is a safe place for questions. Because hear me, the answer, the problem is never questions, but it's where we take our questions. Questions aren't always a sign of unbelief, but can come from a heart of curiosity as to how God will get it done. And the problem often comes is we will take our questions to worldly sources and then wonder why we get worldly solutions. Or we, or sometimes we'll have a question and we know the answer we're going to get from somebody, but we're going to take it to them anyway. We all have that buddy that we can go and ask to do something or we all know somebody, we can go ask to do something and we know they're in for it, even though it's a bad idea, right? And you know if you ask him, he's going to come along with you and tell you to go do it. Why did you ask him to begin with, right? Notice that Abram takes his questions to God. Notice Abram comes to God with his questions, not, not, not to other people who really don't have the answer for him. When he says, well, I have a child, Lord. When will I possess the land that you promised me? And then God has him do something, again, that we've seen is unusual. He doesn't get his answer, but he tells him, go get animals and cut them in half. And notice, Abram does this without hesitation. We don't seem to see any struggle in Abram, like, well, I don't, I, I'm, am I really going to do that, Lord? You know, some people bring, bring God a, a question, and then God gives them an answer, and then they go, really? 
No, 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 no. Abram's like, okay, well, I ask for an answer. I'm going to do what he says. And what's going on here is that one of the ways that the ancient world made covenants, made agreements, made contracts, was through taking animals and cutting them in half and doing this. God was going to secure his promise. He's making a covenant in the ancient world here with Abram. And that God is going to secure his promise. He's going to make sure that Abram knows that he'll keep his promise through literally cutting a covenant. We sign papers. They would cut open animals in the ancient world to show that they were serious about something. And then we see that God appears to him again in a vision or a dream. And we see third, that through covenant, God secures his purposes. That through covenant... God secures his purposes. And look what happens. Verse 12. As the sun went down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not there, and will be servants there. And they'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Here it is, in the midst of, the, of deep darkness, God speaks to Abram. And it's revealed that this covenant ceremony was meant to communicate something. That first verse 9 if you notice, the animals that were brought out were actually foreshadowing the animal sacrifices under Israel's covenant. That If you go and you read the rest of the Old Covenant, you read Exodus and Leviticus, you know, that book that often causes us to struggle to finish our Bible in a year plan, right? If you read the book of Leviticus, these were all the animals that they were allowed to sacrifice there that Abram is having brought to him. You ever wonder why God had certain animals he said you could sacrifice and ones you couldn't? Genesis 15. There's your answer to remind them of this covenant that he was about to make. Notice he says, also bring them to me, and they're three years old. And you might go, that seems a little bizarre. Why, why three years only? And many times these numbers are meant to symbolize or represent something. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon was told to sacrifice a seven-year-old bull, and that was to represent their seven years of oppression under the Midianites. So while I'm not 100% sure of this, I think it's very possible that the three-year-old bulls are meant to point toward the three generations that Abram's offspring, the nation of Israel, were going to be sojourners. In the Old Testament, generations were about 120 years, and so they would end up spending about 400 years there. And also notice that what he's talking about here is the exodus foreshadowed. That these people, that the children of Abraham, they're going to be sold into slavery to a nation and God's going to rescue them out, right? We all, we've all probably seen, you know, the movie version of, of these events maybe. And, he, and then we have this ominous phrase, for the, Amor, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. We see God's hand over everything. Their entrance into Egypt 
how long they were going to stay there. Even when they would leave, God is never taken by, by, by surprise, and he is never taken out of control. And this covenant was going to secure that this prophecy, God's purposes would come true. Even as the children of Abraham would sojourn and wander through the wilderness, God wasn't going to forget his promise. Even after 400 years, God wasn't going to be done with them. And no matter what they got into, God was promising to bring them out. Did you see back in verse 7 of Genesis 15, something, something really just echoed to me there. And it says that God was going to bring out, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God was going to bring, God said, I brought Abram out of a land to possess a new land. And this should ring in our ears to something that sounds like the opening to the Ten Commandments. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That just as Abram experienced an exodus out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, so his children, the nation of Israel, were going to be exodus out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, into a new land. And through it all, God's purpose would prevail. Through covenant, God secures his presence God secures his promises. God secures his purposes. And finally, through covenant, God secures his provision. God secures his provision. And covenant is the most drastic and clear way of saying, I will provide what I say I will. It's the most dramatic way that God could say, I'll not only meet the need for you, Abraham. I'm not only going to keep my promise, I'm going to go above and beyond. Everything that I have said to you will come true. So Abram, he's cut these animals in half, right? And he's cut this covenant. And normally what would happen is both parties would pass through the middle of these animals, blood and all everywhere. And they would walk through the middle of these animals, symbolizing how serious they were about this. They would basically be saying, hey, if I don't keep up my end of the deal, let me become like one of these animals. If I haven't kept my end of the deal, let me be cut open like these are. This is serious stuff, right? And notice what happens next is absolutely incredible. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down... And it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, to your offspring, I'll give this land from the, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. And then he gives kind of the, the layout of the land by nations that were there at the time. He says, hey, where all these people live, I'm going to give to you. And this seems weird. What? There's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between these animals? What is this? And it is an astounding reality. You ever been to one of those churches where the pastor would begin to make his point and the organ would play and the drums would go off and people start getting excited? They, they would take you to church and Genesis is about to get the organ to play because the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch are meant to represent God himself. 
This is what's called the theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. In other words, God passes through the path of blood, swearing that if necessary, he will shed his own blood to keep his covenants. Notice, Abram doesn't have to pass through. God passes through. God alone passes through the animals. God alone makes this covenant. God alone vows to take the curse upon himself should it not be kept. And certainly we should be hearing echoes from thousands of years later as God himself would descend, not simply to pass through two sacrifices in a trail of blood, but to be the sacrifice and to spill his blood to make a new and better and everlasting covenant. The author of Hebrews recalls this in the life of Abraham, and here's what he says. He wants to remind us of our security in Jesus, and he says this, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by which to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And while God made these promises in Genesis 12, which is what Hebrews is quoting. As we know, Genesis 15 is sort of the covenant ceremony. It's where all this is being enacted. And here's what Hebrews goes on to say. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So in other words, when people make an oath, they often swear by something greater. Consider this at the inauguration, regardless of how you feel about it, the people that are being sworn in and are taking an oath put their hand on the Bible, right? And symbolizing that they have a higher authority by which they're making that oath too. When you go to court, right, you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God. They swear by God, but when God wants to make an oath, who does God swear by? There's nobody greater to which he's accountable. So here's what we see. God swears by himself. Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6 verse 16. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled, for we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Did you know, this will be your controversial preacher statement of the day, God can't do anything? Hear, hear this. People, people often say, well, God can do anything he wants. Well, we're actually told that God can't lie, for example. God's actually bound to keep his word. God doesn't just go, well, I know I told you this, but I'm not going to keep my word on this. It's impossible for him to lie or for him to change who he is. And thus, when we come to God, we come to one who cannot change and who will not change his mind. And that's such good news for us. And this covenant is only expanded and clarified as the Bible progresses. Through the nation of Israel, there was going to be a covenant with David and the prophets, all the way to a young girl in Israel. And an angel would appear to this young girl and tell her that, through, that though she was a virgin, she was going to give birth to a baby boy. And this son would be the fulfillment of all the promises given, whether to Adam or to Abraham or to David. And Mary would burst forth in song, and here's what she would sing. 
This is Luke chapter 1, uh, 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God's promises culminate in Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul puts it. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. Here we see, you find a promise from God in his word. Jesus is the yes, the security, and the assurance of that provision. Paul says, this is why we can utter amen, which for those who don't know isn't a gender term. It means let it surely be, right? Surely it will be. Jesus Christ is the assurance and security that God's promises are true. And he's so serious about it, he came and bled and died to make it happen. He took the curse upon himself. The punishment of bulls and goats fell upon him, even as it should have fallen on us. And as Jesus died, God was keeping his promise to Abram alive. As Jesus rose again, he secured for the children of Abraham, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, he was securing eternal life, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God, all by grace through faith in Christ alone. And the invitation of this text is that we can experience the culmination of all God's promises through turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that, that we can trust Him when we come to Him because He has passed through the covenant on His own and says, I will keep my word, I'm serious about it. Jesus stands ready to receive and save you. He says, come as you are and be prepared not to stay there. And if that's something you would want to do to take a step to follow Jesus, I'll be here after the service and would love to talk to you more about that. But doesn't Genesis 15 strike us as incredible? That God would walk through blood to secure his word to us. In fact, R.C. Sproul who, if you don't know, is an incredible Bible teacher. He's gone to be with the Lord. He actually said that if he was ever thrown in prison and he had only one verse that he could take with him, it would be Genesis 15, 17. And I want to put that up for us to see again. He said that this, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smolding, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. He says that's what he wants on his jail cell wall. Because it was a reminder that when God makes promises, he keeps promises. It was a reminder of an unconditional covenant that God would make. It's a reminder that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it also reminds us of something even more incredible, that he did it for you. And if this stunning reality doesn't apply itself, I'm not sure that I have the eloquence or creativity to do so for you, that God is serious about keeping his word to us. What other kings pass through pieces of dead, bloody carcasses for us? What other savior would die like an animal in order to save us? And what other hope is there 
than the gospel hope. Hope that Genesis 15 reorients our vision of what matters, that it reorients our hope and what what will actually keep its promises to us. There are so many things that are trying to sell you every day, that are trying to go, well, if you just do this, you'll be happy. Or if you just just, just compromise in this area, things are going to be okay. And I'll tell you, how's that working out for you? And yet, the hope of Genesis 15 would be a call to rest in the sure and steady anchor of our souls. May we look to the one who's passed through both parts, who's made a covenant by himself and his own power, and trust him to keep his word to us. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father God, it's incredible that you make covenants at all. It's a blessing and incredible to us that you've even decided to take an interest in mankind. You are the one who's holy, 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 and who stands in heaven, and who at your presence and your voice inanimate objects shake. And yet you have chosen to love and pursue and to cut covenants with sinful man. that that you've chosen to pursue after the ungodly, that you've chosen to walk through blood and to actually come and to bleed on our behalf. What incredible news this is and what incredible seriousness you have about your word. Lord, I pray that right now, if there be anybody here who has not encountered you, that this word would shower over them that you have bled for them that you have died for their sins that you've been bearing that you've risen again and that you call them now to respond to turn from their sin and to trust in you to talk to somebody after the service about what this might look like to cry out right where they are and admit god i'm a sinner to say, I believe that your son, Jesus, has come to be buried, to die, to be buried, and to rise again for me, and to confess that he is Lord of their life. But Lord, also ask for us believers that we would not get so caught up in the things of this world that will not keep their promises. Politicians are not going to keep their all their words to us. That the the, the world out there offers us so many things that have failed us time and time again. Maybe look to the one who keeps his word, who's unchanging, and who it is impossible for him to lie. And may we worship him now in spirit and truth. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. Oh, yes, I will. 
from God's Word. Just a reminder uh, that we have baskets here for those who want to leave their uh, offering. I believe we also have some invite cards to take with you. Again, you can give online at the ways I mentioned at the beginning. And if you're new with us, whether online or here in person, I'd love to meet you. We have an online connect card that I encourage you to fill out at crossroadskds.com slash connect. Or if you're here in person, please, I'd love to talk with you and the word of God would give us this promise in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen. <laughs> 